Excellent. Well, good morning again, Hallows Church. Go ahead and take out your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, and we're going to cover verse 7 through verse 13 this morning. As I was preparing, a story came to mind from my past. It was December 26, 2005, and I was about three years old as a Christian, and I had been going through some seasons of growth, but now God was about to do something in my life that uh, would stick with me, of course, uh, for the years to follow. We would, I would go with a group of about 12 people, and we would go participate in a trip in a closed country in East Asia. And so what that means, if it's a closed country, is that the government is typically hostile towards a gospel witness, towards a church that doesn't operate according to its parameters. And if there was a church or a pastor or a Christian who operated outside of what the government thought was appropriate or what could align with the government's view of the way people should act, uh, then that church building, that organization could be shut down. Those people could be thrown in prison. Sometimes they would even lose their lives. And so we went to this place over the winter of 2005 and 6, spent Christmas there, spent New Year's Eve there, and it was on December 26th. I was walking down the hallway of a hotel, and I ran into this guy who was, I guess, standing in the hallway, if I'm remembering correctly, and we just got to chatting. There was a pretty big language barrier. I knew a few phrases, but not much, but he invited me into his hotel room where I found that there was another guy waiting for me. And these two gentlemen, uh, we just start having these conversations. Because there was a high language barrier, there was lots of arms waving. There was lots of attempts to communicate without words. And I come to find out, as I'm in this conversation, that these are two policemen. And, and I'm, I'm like, okay, well... Well, okay, I'll see you later. <laughs> I leave the room, I go back to my hotel room, and then all of a sudden I have this unrest, this feeling in my heart that, you know, Keith, if you're a called one, are you not also a sent one? Isn't this why I brought you here at this place and this time to be a sent one? And, and so I called up someone who, had, who was working long-term in this particular country just to seek their counsel on the situation and by the end of the conversation, by the end of a time of brief prayer together, we concluded, well, the police near the, need to hear the gospel too. And so this three-year-old Christian uh, starts to wander down the hallway with this small makeshift gift because in this culture when there's a moment of hospitality and even in someone's hotel room, you take a gift. And I also had this Christmas card and in this Christmas card, which was also very culturally appropriate at this time because this people would celebrate Christmas even though they had no idea it had anything to do with Jesus. It was all about Santa Claus and it was something American, so they loved it. But anyways, I had this Christmas card and in it, it was all in their language and it was the gospel message tied into the story of Christmas. And so in this moment, I'm walking down the hall and God gives me this moment to be both called and sent to go to this hotel room with these two policemen in this closed country and to deliver the gospel. And of course, I made it out safely. That's why I'm standing here today. <laughs> but that was a moment that I would never forget. And I think we come to that type of moment in the text this morning. We're much like the disciples in that we have been following, we have been observing and seeing Jesus do a lot of things as we've been studying Mark so far. It says in 
uh, chapter 1 that uh, Jesus called the disciples. He was going to make them fishers of men. And in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, we see that Jesus summons the disciples. He's calling them so that they can be with him and he can send them out to preach and to cast out demons. But so far in this narrative of Mark, we don't really see them doing anything. They're just watching. They're observing. They're learning. And now it comes the time when that is not going to be good enough anymore. When Jesus is going to now put the boot in their back and send them out to go do the very thing that he has been doing this whole time. And so maybe the, the way that this sermon sounds this morning will be a little bit different. I think in a way, just because the nature of the text, it's going to sound a little more practical to us. But I think we're going to be learning, along with the disciples, that to be a called one is also to be a sent one. So let me go ahead and read this first section here in verse 7 through about verse 9. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. Now, I don't know about you, but any time that I find myself in a situation where Jesus wants me to do something, I have this thought in my mind of, will I have all that I need? I don't know if you've ever had that feeling, but I definitely have. And I can guarantee you these disciples in this moment, I don't know if it was a surprise to them or if Jesus was warning them, hey, your day is coming, but the day has arrived. He's now sending them out. And I'm sure at least one of them, probably Thomas maybe, I don't know, I don't want to pick on Thomas, but at least one of them was thinking, are you serious? Do I, do I have everything that I need in this moment? I believe these first few verses talk about how a kingdom messenger is provided for by Jesus. Okay, the first thing we see is that he's going to provide them. We see a, a reflection on their identity as kingdom messengers. We see that they are called. We see that they're commissioned. We see that uh, they are a community together. He summons them together. That word summoned at the heart of this word in the Greek is a word, word called kaleo. Now, this is a very common word in those days, but for Christians, kaleo is a very important word because it's wrapped up in our salvation. In various parts of the New Testament, when it talks about our calling and election as Christians, the word that's sitting right there is the word kaleo. And that's what's happening here. This is about the disciples being called and chosen by God to be with him. But it doesn't stop there, does it? He's calling them. He's summoning them so that he can send them out. And this speaks to the fact that if you are a, call, if you are a called one, you are also simultaneously a sent one. The word here for sending them out is the word where we get our, uh, is the Greek word where we understand the word apostle from. But the way that this particular word works is that uh, it, it's almost like a delegate, it's almost like an ambassador. So let me, let me paint the picture for you. Uh, in some settings in these days, a king would send out a messenger, send out an ambassador perhaps to a, a neighboring country to delegate some kind of treaty or terms or some kind of trade business deal or something. So this ambassador goes, and if he was sent in this capacity as an apostle, so to speak, this person, when he arrives on the scene, he is to be treated as if the king himself were standing in the presence of that person. And so this speaks to our identity as those who are called and sent, but when we're sent, <clears throat> we're sent out as those who, it is as though Jesus himself is standing present in the midst of other people. This is what it means to be a commissioned people, that we are given a mission and a purpose as called ones. 
And thank God that it doesn't stop there, that he sends them out in pairs. This, this may be a hindrance already to some of us in this room. We feel stuck in our ability or in our confidence to be a sent one. And it may simply be because we are isolated. And one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us as called and sent ones is that we don't have to do it alone. That he sends these guys out in pairs together. This is one of the things we love to do whenever Hallows Church hosts mission teams. We'll send them out into the neighborhoods and they're prayer walking. They're trying to engage with people. And we always send them out in twos and threes. Because we understand that this is a gift that God has given us. That when we engage in this identity, when we understand this identity more and more, we're not doing it alone. And so for some of us, when it comes to how God provides us, we need to ask ourselves um, along these three lines, you know, maybe, maybe you're here and you're constantly thinking about what do I need to do for God? What, what is my job for God? And maybe you need to spend a little more time resting in the fact that you are a called one. Or maybe you have no problem with the fact that you're a called one. You're great at meditating on this truth of the gospel that you are redeemed by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to forgive us of sins. You have no problem resting in that, but maybe you get stuck there and you forget that simultaneously you're a sent one. You need that reminder. Or maybe you're stuck because you're isolating yourself. Maybe you're discouraged because you're isolating yourself and you're separating yourself from this life-giving thing that is called the church this community, this thing that we get to share together. This is why as a church we love to promote church membership. We invite guests, come check this out. Understand what being a church member is about because this is important. This is us being a spiritual family together so that we can do this thing called life and ministry together. This is why we encourage people beyond Sunday mornings, get involved in one of our missional communities so that you can understand what it looks like in the nitty gritty in the weekend and the week out to do ministry and life together. Are any of these things hindering your ability to be a sent one for Jesus? And, but again, I thank God that it doesn't stop there. He instructed them, I'm sorry, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now think about all the things that Jesus has done so far that we've read, that we've studied. I mean, he's been casting out demons. He's been healing the sick. He's been preaching with authority that nobody has seen before. And now Jesus has just lined them all up and he said, all right, time for you to go do it. I'd be terrified. One of the things that would come to mind, how can I do this, Jesus? I'm not you. I don't have this power. I don't have this authority. Clearly nobody, that's why everybody's jaw drops every time you do something because nobody can do this. Only you can. But then what he says is that same power, that same authority he gives to these disciples. And it be, the picture becomes much clearer as we go on and we see that after Jesus resurrects and ascends to the Father, that he would send his Holy Spirit as a fulfillment of the promise of, at the very least, Joel chapter two, when he would pour out his Spirit on all mankind and he would fill his people with his power and with his presence. And this power and this presence is what would go with his disciples that when we go out, Again, just like we talked about a king sending out an ambassador, being as if a king himself were in the presence of that delegation of people, it's the same for us. 
for these disciples at this moment in time, whenever they would go out and they would interact with people, it would be just as if Jesus himself were standing there giving that word, giving that prayer, giving that healing. Thank God that he provides that power and authority. And it continues on. He instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. I think we've learned by now in the Gospel of Mark, because it's such a, such a short and condensed account of uh, the Gospel, that uh, no words are wasted. I, I mean, I, we could say that's true for the entirety of the Scriptures, but when it's such a condensed version like this, every word really matters. Because sometimes this feels... It's like Jesus, all you had to say was don't take anything. But then he starts listing stuff out. Well, why is that? Let's talk about it. He says no bread. He said, well, he says don't take anything. And then he says, he lists some things out. He says no bread. I want you to think about the most basic form of food in just about any culture. Right? It's this, this type of food that, man, if it didn't exist, a lot of us would be in trouble because it... Um, it fills the stomach, it's usually pretty cheap, and it tastes good enough, right? And of course, I'm talking about boxed macaroni and cheese, right? <laughs> How many of you are alive today because of boxed macaroni and cheese? <laughs> no, of course, I'm talking about bread, right? I mean, this thing that you could spend about a dollar or two dollars or three dollars at the store, and if you had literally nothing else to eat, you could eat bread and you would stay alive, right? Well, it's, it's like that in just about any culture that has bread. You could go to the middle of Central Asia, and the most filling and the cheapest thing that you can buy is bread. And so it's the most basic form of food for just about any culture, and what does Jesus say? You can't take it. You can't take it with you when you go. And then he says, no bag. Well, there's two ways that this word could be understood in this context. One is it's like a knapsack, which, which would essentially be him saying, even if you collect something along the way, you won't, have anything to, you won't have any way to carry it because you're not supposed to take a bag. And that could fit, but I think, the, I think what he's actually talking about here is the way that this word can be used to describe a beggar's bag. That if someone was in a pinch, someone was in a tough spot, they could pull out this beggar's bag and just simply ask for money, ask for help. I, I literally have nothing, right? Can you help me? And that's exactly what these disciples would be. That would be the position they'd be in. They'd have nothing, and they can't even take a bag to collect money. And then he says, no money in their belt. That word there for money would be the lowest type of monetary denomination in this culture. It'd be a piece of copper. It'd be the equivalent of our penny. And Jesus is sending them out and saying, you can't even have pennies in your pocket. And then, if that were not so bad, he ends up by saying, you can't have two tunics. The way this would work was there was the inner tunic and there was the outer tunic. The outer tunic could keep you warm, but when it came to journeying, going on some kind of journey, traveling from one place to another, if you found that you hit the elements, that outer tunic would protect you, but especially if you found yourself in between lodgings and you just kind of had to camp out for the night. You forget your Coleman, you forget your REI mummy bag, in a pinch you could use your outer tunic. 
And that outer tunic would be the thing that would protect you from the elements. It would keep you warm overnight until you actually got to where you're going. And guess what Jesus just told them? You can't even take it. And what I believe he's communicating here is, you know, we just talked about really big things. I mean, this provision of identity and power and authority, but we are such weak people that even if Jesus tells us, we'll still worry about money. I mean, if we're reasonable people, we hear all of this stuff and say, surely, man, if God would not spare his only son, surely he would give us freely of anything else. In fact, the word does say that. But us as people, we hear that, we're like, oh, man, well, okay, that's great. I have this cool identity. I have all this power and authority, but I need bread. That's what we do. I, we, we get stuck as sent ones worrying about money, worrying about where we're going to sleep, worrying about what, what our next meal is going to be. Some of us in this room may have said no to God at some point in our lives because of this very issue, because it didn't fit this idea of security that we love to wrap ourselves in, this idea of comfort that we love to wrap ourselves in. But when Jesus would send them out, he would say, you have to trust me literally for everything, even for your most basic physical needs. And I have to say this just because I, I know the city we live in, you know, a lot of people have taken this to and read it as this is a universal vow of poverty or you have to be an ascetic after this. You have to just live with bare minimum and anything. I'm just going to point out the fact that the counsel of the entire word of God shows that there were all kinds of people in the kingdom who could honor God, rich and poor, okay? So we're not making a universal vow of poverty here in this moment, but this was a specific moment in history when the disciples needed to learn this lesson, but the value is still here for us today. That there'll be times as sent ones, there will be times as sent ones when we can allow this to hinder us. And we have to be reminded that if we are truly called, we are also truly sent. And if we are truly sent, everything that we have, everything that we will need will be provided for. And if, and, and if we finally get to the point where we're like, okay, I understand that I'm going to be provided for, you know, what, what's the next step that we deal with? Well, it it's often contentment, isn't it? God does provide. God does give us the things that we need. God does lead us to that place. But the next thing is being content with what he provides, right? And I think that's what we see in this next section. I'll go ahead and read verse 10. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. The assumption here is not that... Uh, is not, is not if they are provided for, if they find a place to lodge. It's when you do, when it comes. The provision will come. And, and before we move on, let me just say this. Is that awkward for anybody to, to feel like you have to rely on someone else to provide for your needs? Because that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that I'm going to provide for you, but I'm going to provide for you through other people. Anyone else in here really like that feeling? In fact, that's a feeling that I think we hate. You know, we, we grew up uh, believing that um, to need someone's help was a form of weakness. And God forbid we would ever appear weak to anybody. We need to be the Renaissance man, the Renaissance woman who is growing or strong in just about every single facet you can think of, which is... Incidentally, 
very uh, anti-kingdom. It's very anti in the way that God works because he's created a body where there are weaknesses and strengths in every single one of us. And when we come together, it creates this beautiful mosaic of parts that work together as a body. And so at the very least, if they were to accept this, somewhere along the journey, they would get to the point where they realize, wait a minute, I don't know how I feel about this. Everything that I need is gonna come from somebody else. I don't know if I'm down with that, Jesus. I mean, aren't I supposed to be self-sufficient and take care of myself and not need anybody else? That takes humility, right? And so we have to be content in humility to, to accept the fact that God's gonna meet our needs through other people. But it's not just that. Is it, does anybody in here have a story um, I mean, just think about those stories in the past where you went to a hotel or you went to an Airbnb, a VRBO, a hostel or something, and on the website, man, that place looked nice. But when you showed up, you're like, where's the place that I saw on the website? <laughs> this place is nasty. You know, we went, we went on vacation to Louisville, Kentucky one time, and, you know, we were just, we didn't have a lot of money, so we had to shop for price, and we found this place that was kind of like, is a step up from like a roach motel. <laughs> but when we're looking at it online, we're like, hey, you know, they've done a lot of renovations. It looks good. The room looks good. And then we show up. We're like, oh my gosh. Why do my feet feel greasy while I'm walking across the floor? And why are my feet now black from walking on this floor? I don't know how I feel about this. Or how many times have you gone to a place and the host that you're staying with, maybe it was uh, just some kind of, you're staying with a family friend or something like that. And the host was just really weird. Or really, they just made you feel really uncomfortable, or it was kind of creepy, right? We've all had those moments and those experiences when we show up at this place where, you know, this was where we were staying, and once we got there, we didn't like it, right? He's like, this doesn't measure up. But guess what? Jesus said, whenever you get there, you're going to stay there until you leave town. Whatever I provide for you along the way, Whenever you're on this journey as a sent one, wherever I send you, whatever I provide for you, when you get there, you be content with it. Yikes. And, be, and guess what? There would be towns where these guys would go and maybe they would stay in this, you know, this, this like little shack kind of thing where they got the, the accommodations are not at all what they were hoping for. Now, I don't want to... Uh, denigrate this culture in any way. I want to point out the fact that in first century Israel, hospitality was an incredibly important thing to this culture. And so they would have taken very good care of their guests. Nevertheless, the reality is still the same. There would be those moments when a disciple would walk into a lodging situation where God had provided for them and it didn't meet with their expectations. That it didn't meet with their lifestyle preferences. It didn't meet with their level of security or their level of comfort. And what they had to do in that moment, in that place, was to be content with it. And there would be those situations where maybe they're staying there and maybe they meet someone from a noble family and, and that person is saying, hey, you know, why don't you come to our place? We got this like guest house and there's a bath and a fountain and we got some servants that can wait on you and you're hanging out in the shack and you're like, oh, that sounds really great. But I can't. Learning to be content with what God has provided as a sent one. These things are hard. 
Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Uh, Friends, I wish we had the time to investigate further this idea of dusting the so, dust, uh, shaking the dust off the soles of our feet. I think that's a really important lesson that we could learn as churches, especially here in the West, but we just don't have the time for it. But there'll be other opportunities in the Gospel of Mark, I believe, to do that. There's going to be places that do not receive you. There would be places that these disciples would not be received, that people would not listen to them, that they would be rejected. So part of the contentment that they would have to learn, that we would have to learn, is this idea of rejection. Rejection is hard for us, guys. I think, especially as Westerners, it's hard for us because we have a very low community identity as a culture. In other cultures around the world, there's a very high community identity, whether it's family or your tribe. And people don't struggle with where do I belong in community. But here in the West, we really struggle with that because we're individualistic and we're autonomous. And so we hate being rejected by other people because almost all the time we feel lost and have no idea where we belong. Another reason why the church is such a great gift. But this is, this is a reality that's going to be really hard for us that Jesus said we're going to be rejected. And I know that sometimes we try to, we try to comfort each other with these words. We say, you know, don't worry about it. They're, they're just rejecting the message. They're not rejecting you. And I understand the sentiment behind that. I understand there's even maybe a glimmer of truth to that. But let me ask you a question. Was that true for Jesus? Did they say to Jesus, hey, I'm, don't worry, Jesus, I'm just rejecting your message. I'm not rejecting you. Not at all. This faith, if we are called and sent ones, this faith that you hold, this gospel that you hold to will be so deeply entrenched in you. When people reject that message, it will, it, you will not be able to help the fact that they will be rejecting you. And are we content with that? When we go throughout our days and we're isolating ourselves, even as Christians, when we make those choices to isolate ourselves from other brothers and sisters, we are exposing ourselves even more to the opportunity of feeling that deep sense of rejection from other people. We will be more likely to compromise the message that we carry because we so badly don't want to feel that rejection again. And once again, I call you back. What a a gift and even a sense of security that God wants to give us as Christians to be in fellowship and community with each other within the church because rejection will come and it will be personal and it will be against you personally even if they say it's just your message. But as they go out in these instances, as they leave, they would have to shake the dust off of their feet this was very common in those days for Jews. Say a, a Jewish man uh, had to go to a neighboring country. He was just going to engage in some business trade, had a couple of transactions to make. In this neighboring land, it was a Gentile land, which means they were non-Jews. Well, um, this would be an unclean land. This area that he's doing business in would be an unclean land, not because of the color of their skin, but because of the content of their worship. Understand that. Um, there was hostility between them because these Gentile nations would worship other gods. It wasn't because of their nationalities, because of their worship. 
And so that whole land would be considered unclean because everything was affected by those gods. This is how the Jews would view it. And so when they left that land, when they were leaving that place of business, whenever they were leaving that engagement, um, even the dust on the soles of their feet was considered unclean and they didn't want to bring that back into their land and create a sense of personal defilement. So they'd take off their shoes and, and shake the dust off. Well, Jesus takes that same idea And he puts it into this situation. Now note here that Jesus isn't sending them to Gentile territory. He's sending them to their own people. And so one, he's recreating this idea of what is unclean. But even more so, he's telling them that this is going to be an instance, a testimony against them. This is equivalent to God's judgment. And so part of this would be they would have to go to their own people and they would have to face the rejection, and then they would have to leave that place. They'd have to shake the dust off of their feet and feel this sense of if these people do not repent, God is going to judge them. If these people do not turn and give over their sin to this God, God is going to judge them, and they are going to be condemned and cast into a terrible place called hell. And they were going to have to live with that. And so when I say content, I hope by now you recognize that the contentment I'm talking about is not this kind of happy, joyful comfort, but a sense of restfulness. This will be a challenge for some of us. This is not a happy thing for Northwesterners, is it? To talk about things like judgment. But the God that we serve takes sin so seriously. The God that we serve takes righteousness and grace and love and truth and beauty and all of these things so seriously that he has to judge sin. And these disciples were now being wrapped up in this process and as a tangible symbol, they were gonna have to leave this country knowing that if these people don't repent, they're going to be judged. And they had to learn to live with that and then ultimately content with it restful in it, restful in Jesus. That's why we've made a point to say uh, kingdom messenger is content in Jesus, not in a circumstance, not in a particular ideal, but in Jesus himself. Moving on, now that we've talked about provision and contentment, now the dirty work is going to start. Now they're going to go out and actually do the thing. Verse 12, when they went out, they preached that men should repent and they were casting out many demons and they were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. There's gonna, there's gonna be four verbs in here other than them being sent out and we're gonna hit each one of them but overall what these are going to communicate to us is that the kingdom messenger has a ministry just like Jesus. It's comprehensive and it's consistent. And what I mean by comprehensive, it doesn't mean you do everything for everybody. What I mean by comprehensive, when it comes to being a minister of the gospel, being a minister in the way that Jesus was, it means word and deed. You can see this in Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do for the glory of Christ, right? This is what it means to be a comprehensive minister of the gospel, word and deed. But it's not just word and deed, right? They have to be consistent. And so if we are people with a message, if these guys were a people with a message of grace and truth and compassion and the love of God, do those deeds match up with those features? If they have a message that incorporates God's justice and God's holiness and God's wrath against sin, 
And his jealousy for worship do our deeds, do the, did their deeds, were they consistent with that message? And we, we know that this world will be able to spot a phony in a heartbeat. And this was a protection against that. This is who God is. He was a God of both word and deed. This is the way Jesus was. And so the first thing they did, they went out and they preached that men should repent. <clears throat> they used words. We have to just settle that and be done with that. I'm going to <clears throat> tell you a, a quote that I don't like. It's been mentioned, I think, in a hallow sermon before, maybe a year or so ago. But it's preach the gospel, always use words when necessary. I hate that quote. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Let me, tell you, let me tell you a couple of reasons why. One, um, it's often a quote to St. Francis of Assisi, but the problem is he never said it. There's been scholarly journal articles written to prove that this guy never said that, but it's been attributed to him. And two, it's contradictory. To preach the gospel means you speak words. Always, period. And I understand the sentiment behind that quote. It means that our words need to match our deeds and our deeds match, need to match the words, but don't say that because it's just not true. When you preach the gospel, you always use words. Can you imagine how awful it would have been? Think, it's hard for many of us, but think about the days of World War II. Just put yourself maybe in a movie you saw one. The days of World War II, how horrific that season of life was for the entire globe. How many people came home in body bags, all the death, all the destruction, all the horrible things that happened. But imagine that day when the war was over. And newspapers across the globe put a blank page on the front and didn't use any words. It doesn't make any sense. This was such good news that it was printed in the largest font you could find. The war is over. And people were going in the streets, handing stuff out. People were talking all the time. Aren't you glad the war is over? People needed to hear that the war was over. And it's the same with this. People need to verbally hear words or read words. This war is over. So what it meant to preach, and part of that was repentance. Again, that word that we don't like here, this means to have a change of mind, to have a change of heart. And, and I'm gonna use a phrase that will bo maybe bother you on purpose, but I just wanna get a point across. Essentially what this means is the people we engage with we're telling them you're doing it wrong. How fun is that? But isn't that exactly what God did to us? He said, hey, that way that you think about me, you're doing it wrong. The way you think about grace, the way you think about salvation, the way you think about sin and justice and injustice and marriage and singleness and kids, everything, you're doing it wrong. And what you need to do is turn away from that and you need to come under me and learn from me. Learn the way that's right. And when these guys would go out and, and preach that people should repent, this is exactly what they had to do. Again, as if Jesus himself were standing there telling people to repent. Now here's the thing. I want to alleviate some of the concerns you may have in this moment. Half the people you meet in this city may not even know what repent means. Okay, so it's okay to use other verbiage. So that means we're gonna challenge what culture says is good about certain things. We're gonna challenge what our neighbors or our friends or our family members think is good and right and beautiful. We have to be willing to challenge that. You may never use the word repent, but you can communicate the same thing. But this is part of what they would have to do. And 
The reason why is what we see, I think, in the next part. They were casting out many demons. They were going into a place that was going to be filled with darkness, and they were going to be bringing the light of Jesus. Now, I, I put a phrase in here that I used on purpose because I wanted to get your attention, and that is uh, they were casting out demons with spiritual discrimination. Now, that word bothers us, uh, understandably, because it, it has a lot of negative connotation. When we think about discrimination, we think about one of Webster's uh, definitions, and that is to view a certain group of people um, as maybe inferior or as less based on their race, their sex, their nationality, maybe their socioeconomic status, their level of income. And we think that is discrimination, treat those people differently. That's one definition of discrimination. That is a bad thing. Okay? There's another definition of discrimination that you can go home and look in Webster's Dictionary. Boom, there it is. And I'll describe it to you. It's this. It's being willing to look at two things and recognizing that they're different and being willing to call them different. And another way to say it is being willing to call a spade a spade. Okay? Now, can you imagine if Jesus was unwilling to do that when he walked into a situation? Maybe it was when he was walking amongst the tombs and he saw this guy who was increasingly isolated from his family and he was increasingly uh, just destroying himself from being demon-possessed and he's clawing at himself and he's bleeding and he's losing his mind. And if Jesus walked into that situation and said, oh, that, okay, well, that, that's, that's a tough deal. He just had this ambivalent, neutral language. He didn't want to offend anybody. Instead, he walked into that situation. He called a spade a spade. He said, this man is demon-possessed. This man is dying. And this man needs me. And for the disciples to walk into an area that would be filled with people who are oppressed by darkness, filled with people who are trying to earn their righteousness before a holy God, filled with people who are trying to earn the love of every other person around them, they would be oppressed, they would be dying inside, and then one day they'd be going to hell and they had to be willing to walk into that place and call a spade a spade and call a demon a demon. And they had to be willing to discriminate there is kingdom of light, there is kingdom of darkness, and nothing else. When Jesus walked into a place, he didn't see six different kinds of people. He saw kingdom of darkness and kingdom of light. He saw black and white. He didn't see gray. He didn't see people half kingdom of darkness, half kingdom of light. There's one or the other. And so do we have the courage as sent ones to walk into a situation and someone who has a false gospel or someone who just rejects Jesus or someone who refuses to believe in God at all, do we have the courage to walk into that situation and at the very least to ourselves say, this person is lost. This person is in the kingdom of darkness. If they are not under the authority of Christ, they are under the authority of the devil. Are we willing to make those statements to ourselves and communicate with ourselves the truth about the true spiritual condition of people? Because that's what this is getting after. Now, in this moment, they would literally be casting out demons. And um, gosh, my first experience with actually doing that didn't happen until here in Seattle. Some of you probably have actually had that experience. We're not gonna have a demon casting out 101 at this moment. Don't worry. Um, 
But so this was a real thing. But for them to do that, they had to be willing to look at a person and say, that person has a demon. We need to do something about that. Otherwise, they would walk on by and just say, oh, maybe they're just having a bad day or something like that. But it doesn't stop just with that, right? I mean, it goes on. They were casting out many demons. They were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Those are the last two verbs. The word anointing with oil, what that refers to, there's typically two ways you can see that in the Bible. One, there's like this symbolic gesture of anointing a sick person with oil. And what you would do is symbolically setting that person apart to God for God's healing. You're anointing them with oil and you're, you're essentially saying, God, uh, this, this man, this woman, this child is yours. Please heal them according to your will. Another way that this word was used, oil and, and sick people, it was actually medicinally. This was a tangible thing that people did to care for someone who was sick. It was a, the application of medicine. That's why you see in the uh, parable of the, uh, um, the Good Samaritan, uh, when this guy gets beat up, he's left half dead on the side of the road. What does he do? He bandages him and he applies to his wounds oil. It's like a medication. And so what that tells us in this moment, this is where you start to see the deeds coming in. Like these are actually t- caring for tangible physical needs of people. Jesus didn't walk into an area and just preach at them. He didn't walk into an area and just start yelling at them, cold and distant. No, he got up in people's faces. He touched them. He healed them. He prayed over them. He asked them what was wrong. And this is what we have to do as a church, as sent ones. We have to be about word and deed. And this is why we try to engage with organizations like REST, like Union Gospel Mission, so that we can apply resources and people and help to the least of these so that we can see people who have real needs tangibly helped along the way getting the gospel as well. This is why we have homeless care packs on the table in the back because as you go out in the city and you have that helpless feeling when you meet someone who's in this kind of destitute place that you can do something And you can sit down and have a brief conversation, maybe pray for them, but you can give them something that would be helpful. It's why you go to your neighbors and you ask, man, how can I serve you? It's why you ask how you can serve your coworkers. I mean, the, the, the options are endless, but we are people who do things too. And in the end here, at last verb is healing them. This is, this is literal. Disciples were the agent of God literally healing people. And I think the same thing will happen in our midst if it's not already happening. This can happen in multiple ways. It can happen on the spot. We know someone in Central Asia who prayed for a man with a fatal heart condition. He prayed for him in the name of Jesus in a 100% Muslim country. And you know what happened? His heart condition was healed and he became a Christian. Like this stuff really happens and we can do this, like we can be a part of God doing this in this culture and this is one of the ways that God wants us to engage. We have to make room for this in our theology. If you don't believe that God is able to do the miraculous, I, I don't know how you're a Christian because your salvation is the most miraculous thing that could ever happen. And so how can we not make room for the miraculous in the day-to-day that when you pray, you believe God can answer that prayer? You're humble and you say, God, answer it according to your will, but we have to be willing to make room for that. We have to anticipate it. We wanna pray for the miraculous and the people that we're meeting with. And this is what I believe we see in the ministry of Jesus comprehensive it's consistent it's word and deed and it's blessing people and it's ministering to them on just about every single front that you can imagine they feel holy love and comprehensively loved and cared for 
And with a sermon like this, with so much practical application, we have to be very careful and remember the big picture. Remember that before we came across this sermon where there was lots of practical application, remember what we've been doing. We've been talking about faith for weeks, hammering this idea of faith, faith justified by faith. It's faith that healed people. It's, uh, the, the condition is made right by faith through the gospel. And then this practical application comes up. It's why in this section, as well as in chapter 3, the very first thing mentioned is an identity issue about who you are in Christ. You are at rest in Christ first, by his blood alone, through faith. Okay? Period. But we understand that just like it was with Jesus, this faith does something. So I want to make sure we understand that before we bring this thing to a close that we're not trying to preach some kind of work salvation here. We're not trying to preach something that this is what you have to do so that God will be happy with you this week. But this is what you do as an overflow of what God has already done for us. And so now, praise God, we have an opportunity to express that practically, tangibly through the Lord's table. We're gonna invite you Christians, if you have repented of sin and trusted in Jesus, come and participate in the table. And I wanna encourage you to have this mindset as you do so. When you come up, Thank God for your salvation. Thank God that he has also made you a sent one. And if there is something that really struck you this morning, something that you want to grow, ask for God's grace to help you grow in that and tell him, God, I'm coming up and doing this in faith and I thank you. And I pray that one day soon you will, you will allow a coworker, a neighbor, someone that I know to walk this line with me and join me at the table soon. And let that be your prayer as you come up. If you're here in this room, you're not a Christian, uh, we asked you to we respectfully ask you to refrain from this time. We do pray that you would join us one day at this table, repenting of sin and trusting Jesus by faith. His blood is enough to bring you back to the Father. Until then, maybe you could just take this opportunity to reflect on some prayers we have and the worship God you received on the way in. Take some time and talk with God. Ask him if this is really true. If, if you have questions, please come talk to us. If you want to follow Jesus, please come talk to us. We want you to meet him. And so with that, church, let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. Everything is for you and in you and through you, God. You are all in all. And Jesus, this is entirely about you. Thank you for the gospel, which means that we are free, which means that we are saved by Jesus, by his blood on a cross. And after he was buried, he was raised to life, alive forevermore, just like we will be. We thank you for that truth. Thank you that we can be at rest in it. And now, God, please take this and move it through our hearts, throughout our body, into our hands and our feet, and our, our hand and our hands, our feet, our mouths, so that we can comprehensively minister to the people around us. We can be sent people just like the Father sent you. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your grace. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen.